Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church and visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our senior pastor, Nate Holdridge. Verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 6, if you could follow along with me, it says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washing, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this, verse 3, we will do if God permits. For it is impossible, verse 4, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For verse 7, the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But, verse 8, if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, verse 9, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for His name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit these promises. All right, so there you have it. Just some nice light reading this morning (laughs) for us as a church. Just some difficult words. Every pastor knows when they start teaching the book of Hebrews, you know, line by line, verse by verse, that Hebrews 6 is coming. It's, it's a difficult section. And uh, I, I look forward to sharing it with you this morning. So let's pray and ask him to help us. God, please help us in your word today. We thank you for it. We ask, Lord, that you would strengthen us in it, that we would be exhorted, moved, shaped, molded, motivated, moved along in our Christian maturity by Lord, our faith in you and by this passage. In Jesus' name, we pray together. Amen. Amen. Look, every human being has to make a decision on what their lives are going to be about. For some people, their lives are going to be consumed with a pursuit of success. You know, a desire that they could make something of their lives. In whatever endeavor they pursue, that they would be successful in that endeavor and be known in the community or in the world as a person who who did something with the life that they had. They were successful. Others, obviously, we've seen, could build their lives upon the pursuit of wealth, things, money. You know, a, a desire for the ease, perhaps, that is attached to possessions and wealth. Some, and it seems to increasingly be the case, that people will build their lives upon a pursuit for fame. 
You know, a desire to be known by others, whether known for good things or known for bad things, but that people would know their names, that they would leave some kind of mark and legacy and impression on people's minds. Some people live their lives pursuing, I think, a myth of being a unique person, <laughs> that, that they could be special you know, the snowflake that their mom told them that they were and that there could be nobody like them because they are so unique in the things that they do, the things that they say, the way that they live their lives. Others live their lives pursuing an identity that is rooted in their sexuality and build their whole life, their whole persona based on their sexuality. Others live their lives in pursuit of experiences, they don't want a lot of things, but they want to go to a lot of places and have a long list of places that they've gone, experiences that they've had, adventures that they've enjoyed. You could build your life pursuing friendships and hobbies and all of these things, but what we know in God's Word and what Hebrews 6 will teach us is that Jesus Christ Himself is the greatest and best pursuit. And the author to the Hebrews is going to urge his hearers onward in a pursuit of Jesus Christ. A, a phrase that comes to mind from the life of Jesus comes from Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, where he said, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. There is a kingdom. It's not your kingdom or my kingdom, it's his kingdom. And that kingdom is worthy of the greatest pursuit. And so that's what this chapter or this section is going to urge us on into. Now, I have a desire today. I mean, this passage, like I said, this is a difficult passage. And there are some questions about this text that demand some answers and some inspection. And what I want to do today is I want to draw your attention first. The first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to spend some time talking about the, the, the difficulties in this section. Because the real difficulty in this section is centered around one question. Who are the people in verse 4 through 6? Because what he says in verse 4 through 6 is that there are certain people that it is, when they've done a certain thing, impossible to bring them back into repentance. So they had something, they tasted the Spirit, they tasted the Word of God, they tasted the powers of the age to come. Something happened, they fell away, it says, and it's impossible to bring them back into repentance. So if you're like me, you want to know, like, who are those guys? <laughs> All right? Am I, am I the, one of those people? You know, like, I want to know who those people are. So I'm going to spend some time talking about that but here's the thing i've listened to a lot of teachings about hebrews chapter 6 in my lifetime i've read a lot of scholars about hebrews chapter 6 in my lifetime i've taught the book of i've taught the book of hebrews before i've taught hebrews chapter 6 before and one of the mistakes i think that can be made is that we would spend our whole time having like a nerdy debate about who these people are and then each one of us individually could go well i think this is who he's talking to and then I could close in prayer, say amen, and we could walk out the building, and there would be nothing that moved us on in our faith. When this passage is one of the most severe warnings in all of God's Word, 
I mean, the Bible is meant to befriend you, come alongside of you, encourage you, but the Bible is also meant to exhort you at times, correct you at times, confront you at times. When I was coming up, I played sports, and sometimes I had coaches that would come alongside, and they'd encourage and point out all the things you were doing right and try to encourage you in those things, and then I had other coaches that would just yell their brains out, and both of them motivated me to become a better player. You know, sometimes you need that soft encouragement and sometimes you need a stern correction, exhortation, and I don't want us to miss that. So after I explain to you who I think is being dealt with in this section, I'm going to show you four exhortations from this passage that will help us, I think, in our pursuit of Jesus, okay? All right, so let's, let's look at verse four and six, uh, four through six together again. I want to read it to you. One more time, if you'd humor me, look at this in verse 4 through 6 again. It says, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance. They did all those things, but they fell away. You can't restore them again to repentance since... They are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. In other words, they did something in their falling away that joined them together with the group that crucified Jesus. They do not see the cross of Christ as valuable for humanity, but a pointless experience, and maybe even worse, agree with those who crucified Jesus, that He was worthy of of death. And, and what he says is that for that group, whatever they did in falling away, it is impossible to restore them again to repentance. So the stakes are, wouldn't you say the stakes are high for this group? So the question is, who are these people? Now, like I said, I've, I've, I've read a lot about Hebrews 6 in my lifetime. I've listened to a lot of people teach Hebrews 6 before. And I've heard lots of different possible interpretations with varying shades and degrees of overlap between them. Probably I'd say there are seven or eight possibilities that all are kind of similar, but with their own unique variation. But there are two main camps, two main possibilities, and I'm going to share those two with you, okay? The first one is real simple. The first one has the idea that these people that he's describing were never Christians, but they were people who had interacted with Christians in their community. You know, they'd heard the Word of God, so they partook in it. They'd been around believers, so the believers were filled with the Spirit, so they'd partaken of the Holy Spirit. They'd, you know, considered Christianity to a degree. They'd heard the Gospel message, but a point came in their lives where, perhaps even vehemently, they rejected Jesus. Kind of the idea of this view is what happens when we are vaccinated against a particular illness. You know, the illness is out there, and in the vaccination, what will they do? They will actually give you a small dose of the illness. I'm not a doctor or anything like that, but this is the, as as far as I know, this is what happens. And they give you a, a little bit of that illness so that your body builds up an immunity against the full blown illness when it comes around you. So you are inoculated, you are vaccinated against that thing when it comes. So the idea of this view is that these people have received, they've heard, they've listened to, they've been around Christianity enough 
to where they've made a decision, I don't want that, and that rejection has vaccinated, inoculated them against receiving the gospel. Their hearts are now hard, and this person is not able to come into the body of Christ. And it's possible that what's happening here, because if you read in verse 1 through 3, he lists all these things. Like We want to move past the ABCs of the Christian faith, the, the elementary principles of Christ. And he lists all these different things, and some of them are similar to Judaism, which maybe you had Jews who were engaged in things like repentance, faith, washings, or baptisms, laying on of hands, commissioning people in a ministry, the resurrection and judgment. These are things that Jews taught, believed in, thought about in different ways than we as Christians do. We have a fuller understanding of each one of those elements, but they were part of Judaism. So maybe they'd receive some of those things, but come to a place of saying, I don't want to have anything to do with Jesus as Messiah, and their hearts were hardened. And the author says, look, they've received enough, they've rejected enough, and it is impossible to bring them back into repentance. But the second group, or the second view of who these people are, is likewise you know, very straightforward. If the first group never received, the second group are those who did receive the message of the gospel. They appear, by all accounts, to be believers. Now, I'm saying that carefully. They appear to be believers. Because inside of this camp, all right, so now I gave you you camp one, camp two, now I'm giving you camp 2A and 2B. Camp 2A says these are people who were believers who lost their salvation. But the problem with that is that the Bible indicates over and over again that if you are a legitimate, real believer, you cannot lose your salvation. It says in John 10, verse 27, Jesus speaking, he said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And many other passages like that confirm the idea that a true believer will not lose their salvation. Romans 5, verse 10, Romans 8, verse 35, Romans 8, 38 and 39, 1 Peter 1, verse 4 and 5, Philippians 1, verse 6, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, not to mention the character and nature of God himself and how the transaction of salvation actually even works in the first place. So if somebody takes Hebrews 6 and begins to say that believers can lose their salvation, personally, I think that they are skating on very thin ice when they build a doctrine like that on a passage of Scripture that they're removing, I think, from the rest of Scripture that is all around it. However, there is also in this view those who think that these people appeared to be believers, but they were never actually legitimate Christians. They'd never actually legitimately been converted, renewed, born again by the Holy Spirit. Remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus at nighttime? He said, how can I get into the kingdom of God? Jesus said, unless you're born again, you can't even see the kingdom. You must be born of the Spirit. There has to be this conversion that takes place in your heart. Now, the Bible seems to make room for this kind of person. A person who outwardly, to all the human beings in the room, looks like a rock-solid believer, but actually isn't. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 and following. He said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, 
but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. On that day, Jesus continued, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, now what I want to draw your attention to in the words of Jesus is, is this, because I've heard people quote Matthew 7, verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But usually when I hear people quoting that verse, you know what they're applying it to? They're applying it to nominal Christianity. And I think nominal Christianity is a huge problem totally exists. People going to church, people saying I'm a Christian, but they've never had a conversion experience. I think nominal Christianity is a huge issue and a huge problem, but lots of times people will quote Matthew 7, 21 to talk about nominal Christianity. Hey, look, on that day, many will say, Lord, Lord, and Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you, but notice the type of person that Jesus describes. He doesn't say, you know, because in their life, They were just saying, I'm a Christian, but they never read the Bible. They never served the Lord. They never went to church. They never shared their faith. He doesn't say any of those things. What he says is, they did stuff. They were prophesying. They were casting out demons. They were doing many mighty works in his name. You see, from the human vantage point, If you or I met somebody like this, casting out demons, prophesying, doing doing many mighty works in Jesus' name, wouldn't you and I look at them and say, dang, rock solid stuff. That person is a legit believer. But you see, Jesus saw something different in the hearts of these particular individuals. The Pharisees also stand out as an example of people like this. In Matthew 23, Jesus rebuked the Pharisees. And and in so doing, he first said, look, you guys proselytize. You go throughout the nations. Go throughout the world to make proselytes. You go on missions trips. You pray. You make religious commitments to God. You tithe, not just your money, but all the way down to your spices. You honor religious traditions. You fast, Jesus said. But his conclusion about the Pharisees because their heart was so far from God, he called them sons of hell. And I don't know exactly what he meant by that, but that's not good. (laughs) You see, from the human vantage point, people like this look legitimate. They look like a legitimate believer. But perhaps there is something there from God's vantage point where there's a completely different story. And for me, as I think about these two different views that I'm talking about, the first one, that these people were never really identified with the Christian faith, it's just tough for me because when I read verse 4 through 6, that these were enlightened people who tasted things and shared in things, the Holy Spirit, the goodness of the Word of God, the powers of the age to come, it's just hard for me to imagine that they were just people who heard the gospel You seem like people who went a little bit further. To me, as I look at this passage, it seems that this is a person who looked like a legitimate believer to everyone, but God saw differently. And eventually, what happened was their refusal to truly receive the gospel caught up with them. So they then apostatized, rejected Jesus, and left the faith. We have examples of this in the Bible. Uh, probably the most famous one would be Judas. 
Sometimes we read about Judas in the Gospels and we think that Judas was just like, obviously the traitor. You know, like he was over in the corner, you know, just always with a hood on and like devising things. But when Jesus announced to his disciples that one of them would betray him, they didn't all just say like, well, duh, <laughs> we know <laughs> that guy. We don't know why you ever put him on the team. You know, they all asked, like, is it I? Who is it? What's going on? And Jesus, it actually became so blatant with his disciples in that upper room that he said, it is he who I take the bread and when I dip it and I hand it to him, he receives it and eats it. And then right after saying that, Jesus took the bread and dipped it and handed it to Judas and Judas reached out his hand and took it and ate it, and along with the bread entering in his body, so did Satan himself. And Jesus said, what you must do, go and do quickly. But when he left, they still didn't get it. They still weren't like, oh, that makes sense. They still wondered, wait, is it us? <laughs> Who is it? They didn't know. Judas went out on missions trips. You know, there were times that Jesus sent his disciples out two by two to cast out demons, preach the gospel, Judas was on somebody's team. He was working. He was doing things. He was, had the appearance of fruitfulness coming into his life. But here's what Jesus said about him after Judas betrayed him. He said, it would be better for him if he had never been born. There was no hope for him of repentance, just like this text says. Another example of this in the New Testament is a man named Demas who was on Paul's ministry team greeting churches, serving churches. But at the end of Paul's ministry life in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he said, Demas has forsaken me having loved this present world. He didn't last. He didn't continue. He had the appearance, but he fell away. And look, I think we all know people like this. It might be people who had a public ministry who taught great things about the Word of God and all of that, and then eventually came to a point in their life where they said, I don't want to have anything to do with Jesus. I don't want you to count me as a believer anymore. They apostatize. They turn from the Lord. Uh, but I think we also know people like this personally. People who name the name of Christ for a season, and then something happens in their lives where they say, I don't want to have anything to do with Him. I don't, I don't know Him. I don't receive Him. I don't think that He died on the cross for my sin. I don't think that who he's talking about here in this passage are backsliding people. The Bible is a book of hope for the backslider. But this person seems to be a person who, to me, balancing Scripture with Scripture, never became a legitimate convert, toyed with it, but eventually the unbelief sprang out of their heart and they rejected Jesus. And what it says about them is that it is impossible for them to be restored again to repentance because it's like they're crucifying Jesus again. Now, now, let me just say this about that word impossible. Somebody asked me one time, they're like, but what's the Greek of that word impossible? Like, does it kind of leave the door open? And the, it's the word impossible. <laughs> it, there's, no, like, there's, there's no option here. It's, it's the same word that's used to describe, and it is impossible for God to lie. It's the same Greek word in the New Testament. It's not, a, it's not a word where like, maybe there's some wiggle room there with the meaning of the word. Here's what my hope is, and I have no assurance that this is the reality, but here's what my hope is. My hope is that what the author is saying is that this is something that is impossible for human beings to do. 
It's impossible for us, when somebody apostatizes like this, it's, it's impossible for us to bring them back. It's impossible for us to get them to repent. It's impossible for us to draw them back into the community of faith. But my hope is that this is one of those things that is in the category of impossible with man, but possible with God. Jesus said when he confronted a rich young ruler and challenged him in certain ways, and then the man went away sorrowful because he had great possessions, he couldn't do what the Lord asked him to do. Jesus said it's impossible for rich people to come into the kingdom of God. And the disciples were shocked by that. What do you mean it's impossible? We thought that was a sign of God's blessing. You're saying it's impossible. And Jesus responded, he said, yeah, it's impossible with man, but it is possible with God. So that's my hope with this kind of person. That what we cannot do, what, what would be the wasting of our breath for a person like this in trying to draw them back, that God can do it. That God could stir in their hearts. And I think there's some evidence of, of that in this text that I'll talk about a little bit later. So that's the best I got for you about this, this guy and, and who these, these people are. So that said, I want to get back to the four warnings that are designed to urge us on in our pursuit of Jesus. Okay? You guys with me? You guys with me? You all right? Was that okay? You guys okay? <laughs> like everybody's just scared right now. Okay. It is a serious text. And I, you know, for me personally, I'm glad that there's a little bit of mystery around it. I like that. I think God wants us to seek his word, to have to figure things out. I think it's a measure of our faith. It's a test of our faith. You know, will you actually think about this? And I like the sobriety that's found in this. I think it's good for us. All right, so number one, giving you four things. Number one, pursue Christian maturity. Pursue Christian maturity. We get this from verse 1 and uh, through verse 3. Notice what he says. He says, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Okay, what the author wants is for us to pursue Christian maturity. Now, now what he then lists is he lists like a bunch of what he calls elementary doctrines of Christ. And when he lists them, to be honest with you, they don't sound all that elementary to me. I mean, he says, repentance from dead works, faith toward God, instruction about washings, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Some of these doctrines are kind of advanced to understand. Because what he's talking about here are things like repentance, justification by faith, baptism, both in water, but other forms of baptism as well, the baptism of the Spirit, Baptism and the inclusion of the body of Christ being, being made part of the church. The laying on of hands re references ministry, being called into ministry, serving the Lord. The resurrection of the dead talks about the future. How's that going to happen? The, the great and last and final resurrection and eternal judgment, heaven and hell. These don't sound like beginner doctrines, but I think what was happening here for the author is he's looking at his congregation and he's saying, look, we can continue to teach these things. And think about these things. And grow in our knowledge and understanding of these things. But what I don't want to do is to have to keep on going back to these things over and over again and trying to reconvince you that they're legit, that they're real. I want you to receive them, each one of these doctrines. Grow in your understanding of them, of course. But I want you to go on into maturity. And really, for the believer, this is the only path forward into 
a life of Christian maturity. And we should, we should want that. We should desire that. So that's the first thing. We should go on, press on into Christian maturity. Here's some ways to get Christian maturity into your life. Receive mature teaching. You know, if you're listening to, thinking about, reading books that, you know, that are Christian-based, but it's, it's immature, it's lightweight, you're not going to really grow. So receive, receive mature teaching. Another way is to watch mature people. Watch mature people. Now, I love this. You see this sometimes in a life group. You'll get two or three really solid believers in a life group, and maybe everybody else in the group, not so much. But those two or three mature believers leave a lasting mark on those who are not yet mature. Because the way that they live their lives, the way that they speak to each other, the way that they prioritize things in their lives, they stand out to everybody else that's in that room or in that community or in those relationships. Get around mature believers. Watch how they do things. And then here's another way to pursue Christian maturity. Bear with me on this one. Do mature things. I think this one is underrated in the Christian life. Because so, so often I think there's this thing about Christians, we kind of tell ourselves like, you know, I, I, I'll, I'll like grow and think and stuff like that. And then after, once, once like I get to a certain point where I really feel like doing the mature things, serving, giving, praying, studying, seeking first the kingdom, once I feel like doing those things, then I'll start doing those things. But I'm just going to kind of wait for that feeling to come. Jesus said, though, that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Not the other way around, that where your emotions, your heart, whatever you feel like, that's what you're going to treasure. No, he said, what you treasure, that's where your heart's going to go. And something happens to a person when they do the mature things. You start serving in the church, and pretty soon, you start caring about the church that Jesus wants you to care for. You start becoming generous toward others, and you, suddenly you start caring about others like Christ wants you to. So do those mature things and watch what the Lord does in your life. It seems that the idea of the author is that the sky is the limit for those who pursue Christian maturity, but that serious danger lurks for those who don't. I, uh, I had a chance a few, a couple of months ago to grab coffee with a friend that we'd just been so busy over the last few years just doing ministry, doing different things, that we just kind of lost touch with each other. And so we set up a time like, hey, let's catch up. I want to hear about your ministry. I want to hear about what you're doing. I just want to get that report from you. And this, this guy, he, he's, a, he's a great man. He, he was actually part of our church years ago. He had been in prison, and uh, when released from prison, entered into the bridge home, and was you know just growing, being shaped, walking with the Lord. And then after his graduation, that's when I really started getting to know him a little bit. He was in a little class that I was teaching, and he eventually went with Pastor Matt Gersandi a few years ago when we sent him to from our church into Salinas to start a new church, Refuge Salinas, which is doing really well, by the way. And uh, he went out with them, and then he started his own ministry where he invites paroles, parolees into his home for a period of acclamation. You know, brothers who have gotten saved perhaps in prison, have grown in prison, he invites them into his home for a period of time 
to live with him and his family before they're, you know, to kind of make that transition into everyday life. And I just wanted to get together with him and hear about what he's doing and his ministry. And it was great. You know, God's using his life. It's just really cool to watch. But a lot of it came because he devoted himself to the pursuit of Christian maturity. I remember sitting in, in that class that I was teaching, and on the first day of it, I asked each one, it was like six or seven guys, I asked each one of them, how many of you have read the whole Bible before? And, you know, most of the guys were like, I'm almost finished. I've almost got it done. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm on the last few, of, you know, obscure prophets or something like that. But I could tell that he was like pretty stoked I was asking this question. He kind of had that look on his face. So when I got to him, I'm like, hey man, how many have you read the Bible before? And he's like, yeah, I've read it five or six times. And, uh, and I was like, oh yeah, tell me about that. You know, like when did you get started with reading the whole Bible? And he said, well, prison is super boring. <laughs> <laughs> I gave my life to the Lord when I was locked up and I just committed myself to Christian maturity. I started getting into this book that I'm saying I believe. I wanted to see what it said, what it had to say to me. He committed himself to that life and man, God just opened great doors in his life, partly I think because of the faithfulness that he demonstrated. Okay, number two, receive the gospel well. Receive the gospel well. That's our second point. This comes from uh, our difficult verses in verse 4 through 6, but then also his response to it in verse 7 and 8. Would you read that again with me? He says, For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Here, what he does is he gives a, a picture to his audience. You know, we think in pictures like this. And the picture is that of a field. And the field receives rain. And one field produces one kind of crop, so to speak, and the other produces an, another. The, the, the first one that I'll mention is the second one that he mentions. It's, it's the field that receives the rain, but it bears thorns and thistles, which and makes it worthless and near to being cursed, verse 8. And in the end, it's burned. Now when you or I read that, that sounds terrible, right? You know, the burning of the field. And it might conjure up in our minds images of eternal judgment, because eternal judgment is often equated to an everlasting fire. And so we might think of that in connection to this passage, but although that might be accurate, don't rip this from the context. And in the context, he's giving a picture of a field that when it receives water, it bears thorns and thistles, and the farmer goes out and burns the field. Why would the farmer do that? He's doing that not to say, I'm done with this field, but I want to actually see something good grow from this field, so I have to resort to drastic measures to get this field where I want it to be. This is part of the reason why I think that it's possible that it, this is one of these it's impossible with man but possible with God kind of things. That he'll do what he has to do to get the soil of a person's heart back to where it needs to be. But it's God that must turn this first person back. But the second kind of soil that we see there is the kind that produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it's cultivated. 
These are people who they've received the reign of the gospel onto their hearts and their lives become fruitful because of it. They respond well, fully, completely, totally, robustly to that message of the gospel. It's not just a get out of hell free card kind of experience for them. No, they want their whole life to make a difference in the world in which they live. They have received the gospel well. Jesus talked about this kind of thing, didn't he? He told the parable, his most famous parable, I think, of all the parables, of a sower who went out to sow the seed. Some of the seed was scattered on the wayside, on the path. Some of the seed was scattered on stony ground. Some of the seed was scattered on thorny ground. And some of the seed was scattered on good soil. They asked him, what does that mean? He says, well, you know, those on the wayside, the gospel, the the seed, the word, it goes out and Satan just scoops it up. Like the birds eating that seed, he just scoops it up. It doesn't even have a chance. Some seed goes into the stony ground and those are those who, you know, they receive it for a little bit with excitement. It seems like some growth is happening, but the first time trials and difficulties come into their lives, they say, whoa, I thought I was escaping all trials and difficulties by becoming a believer. I'm out of here. And then there's another soil that when they receive the word, you know, it's, it's growing, it's doing its thing, but the, de- the desires for riches, the deceitfulness of riches, the desires for other things, it comes into their lives and, and it just chokes out the potential fruitfulness of the word or that gospel message in their lives. But for some, it lands on good soil and it grows and it bears fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold. I remember when I was first getting started in ministry and serving the Lord, you know, I wanted to make a difference. I, I wanted to make a difference now. <laughs> and, and I remember my father, he shared something with me that was really important for me at that time. He drew my attention, I think it's 2 Chronicles chapter 4, to a man named Jabez, and this was before the whole book of Jabez thing went in a totally different direction. But he shared with me, he said, look, there was this man, he caused his mother pain in childbirth. And so when he grew older, he didn't want to cause pain with his life. He wanted to be a blessing to other people. So he prayed to God, God, would you increase my sphere so that I might not cause pain? I want to be a blessing. My dad said, pray that way. Ask God to increase your sphere so that you can bless people. Not so you could have a big sphere of influence, but so that you can be a blessing to as many people as possible. And I began to pray that way. It was the desire to have and to be a useful crop. You see, Paul says things like this in Philippians 2, verse 12. He says, look, you, if you got salvation, if, you, if you're saved, if, if, if Jesus has redeemed you and saved you, then, then he says this, then work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. If it's in you, you got it. It's yours. It's your own salvation. So you want to now work that out into your everyday life and experience. I've served with a lot of people you know, in the last 20 years, but the, but the person that I've actually served with longest is uh, a woman who's here on our staff. She's going to kill me that I'm talking about her because she doesn't want any attention at all. But her name's Kelly. And <laughs> she's, she's an accountant. And she, she got saved. Her and her husband made a decision that, you know, I mean, they could have done the 
she could have gone her route, gone her full career with his full career and all of that, but they made a decision that she was going to give her accounting life to the kingdom. And that has been such a blessing to our church for almost two decades now. And when I see in somebody like that, a person that says, I want to produce a useful crop. I want to receive this gospel well. All right, number three, let's look at this and then we can get in the home stretch, wrap it up. Number three, know that God sees your work, your love, and your service. Know, know that God sees your work, your love, and your service. And the reason I say that is because verse 9 and 10, look at it with me together. It says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. I don't think he's trying to like say, uh, oh, don't take everything I just said seriously. It's you know, hypothetical. I think what he means is, look, guys, I'm, I'm sure you're going to respond better than this group that I talked about. For God, verse 10, is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. You see, the reality is when you go on this pursuit, on this track, you know, of, of seeking first the kingdom and his righteousness, there are going to be times where it's a thankless experience from human beings. That's just the reality. There will be times that you do things that are work for him and his kingdom, love for other people or for him or service to others. There will be times that you do those things and you feel that you are not seen not appreciated, not thanked. You, there will be times that you might give your life to the saints and it is an unappreciated generosity that you've given. But what he wants them to be encouraged with is not, oh, don't worry, people really do notice. What he, what he wants them to be encouraged with is God notices. God sees that you've lived that kind of life. He sees the way that you've laid down your life. Even when others do not see, know that God sees. And look, I'm, I'm making this point right now today, and I think many of you here in this room, you would relate to this, you would connect with this, you're giving a portion of your life for the kingdom and all of that, but to be honest with you, there's probably a good amount of people right now that are listening to me say this, because they're, and, and they're not listening live, they're listening to it in their car, they're listening to it on Monday morning. They're listening to it while they're you know, having a quiet time with the Lord or something like that. And the reason that they're doing that is because there was so much to do on Sunday morning or Sunday night that they gave themselves to do that they couldn't come in here to listen because they were giving themselves. And so, you know, when you pick up your kids from Calvary Kids or something like that, say thank you. <laughs> Say thank you. It's good that God sees, but let's also see and celebrate and rejoice. Okay, last thing, number four, be diligent to the very end. Be diligent to the very end. He says in verse 11, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For verse 11, I like the message translation. It says, now I want each of you to extend, extend that same intensity toward a full-bodied hope and keep at it until the finish. 
The idea here from the author is to his audience, hey, be diligent, don't be sluggish. Imitate those who just worked, who kept going, who were doing. And one way to do this, he says, is through imitation. The last couple days, I was up in Sacramento teaching at a men's conference for a church there. And it was just so fun for me because um, the other people that were speaking at it, the other pastors that were teaching, they're like mentors of mine, like pastors that I look up to, that I ask questions of, you know, stuff like that. But it was really fun that we're all going to be together. And so it was neat to teach, but we got to hang out a lot together. And we, we had this time on Friday night. The session was over with. Everybody went home. It was like 9, 9.30 at night. And I was so happy because, you know, they're older guys, so I thought maybe it was like bedtime. <laughs> and, uh, but they're like, hey, you want to go out to dinner? You know, so I'm like, yeah, cool, let's do it. So we go out to dinner. There's like five of us. We're sitting around this table. And, uh, you know, I just had questions. You know, how do you do this? How did that happen? How, what are you into right now? You know, what's your experiences? And as I'm just listening to them, what, I, what I'm trying to get is their faith. I want to imitate that. And that helps us, according to the writer, to be diligent to the very end, to be stirred and motivated to be diligent to the very end. Okay, so this is what the Lord has for us. He wants to bring us into that kind of life. What we're going to do now is something that I think is very important for us to do today. I'm so glad that it worked out this way for us to do this. Because honestly, a text like this, is, it should be convicting. It should be a thing in our hearts where the, the Spirit's messing with us a little bit, convicting us. That's good. That's a good thing. Don't resist that. When it's specific and clear, accept it. If it's vague and condemning and pushing you from God, then reject that. But if there's some clarity and God is bringing conviction, then receive that from Him. Because we're going to take communion now to close out our service. And here's one of the verses in the Bible that talks about communion. It says, let a person examine himself and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. Sometimes as you do that examination, you realize, you know, there's something that's off in me and I need to deal with this and recommit myself to the Lord. And perhaps as we take com communion this morning, that's for you. Thank you for listening. If you'd like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our senior pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.